But what I also really like about the way that we're starting to think about consent and, and implementing ideas around consent yeah. is that, you know, it can be withdrawn mm. at any time. We're starting to think much more seriously about how power dynamics affect sexual relationships and yes. relationships and romantic relationships so that yeses are not always yeses in the way that mm. we would understand enthusiasm. Mm. We have something in South Africa called Tutuzela Care Centers. Yes. And they are basically one-stop sexual assault, sexual violence, gender-based violence mm. units mm -hmm. within certain public hospitals within the country. Yeah. Perpetrators are people. GBV survivors are also people, which makes them complicated. They're yeah. not angelic victims. It's one of the most damaging stereotypes because it says that some people deserve violence and other people don't because so tough. like of who they you know who they are. Yeah. And nobody's perfect. Yeah. Because I think there's also this really toxic narrative around if you've been raped, yeah. Your life is over now. Yeah. You'll never be the same again. So to tell survivors that there's no right way to recover. Yeah. That you you need to find the thing for you yeah. and and go from there. Yeah. I do think counseling is helpful even if it's to talk about how it's affected you and not what happened. I think I'll always volunteer at Rape Crisis because yeah. it's, it's it's definitely an amazing organization. And the latest project that Cornelia is looking at now is it's building a chatbot essentially using generative AI, artificial intelligence. Yes. But I think what what is always helpful is to sort of celebrate the wins, the little wins with yourself, but also to you know know that post-traumatic growth is a beautiful thing. Hello and welcome to Navigating the Twenties. You are with me, Zintla Novazi. In today's episode, I engage in a powerful dialogue with Renal Gukamur, a survivor-centered gender-based violence specialist and business development manager at Guanele, South Africa. Drawing from her experience as a sexual trauma counselor at Rape Crisis Cape Town Trust, Renal shares insights on the forefront of the battle against gender-based violence. We explore the nuances of consent and the significance of non-judgmental support for survivors. In this episode, you will discover Guanelle's groundbreaking work in the GBV space, utilizing technology to provide women with a fast, accessible, data-free mobile app for help and guidance through the challenging processes of laying charges and securing convictions. So tune in to episode seven for inspiring conversations on consent, survivor support, and innovative solutions combating gender-based violence. So Renal, how are you? I'm good, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. For some of our listeners that have not come into contact with your profile on LinkedIn or just in general socially, who is Ronal? And like, if your friends or your mom had to describe you, how would they describe you? I don't know. I don't. I don't know how they would describe me. But I think a, a big part of my sort of personality or my lifeblood is is working in sexual and gender based violence, and that's what I talk about all the time. And I'm I'm sort of not fun at parties because yeah. that's what I bring up. <laughs> it's a big uh, topic. Yeah. yeah. So, so yeah, and I I, I think. I think people would describe, they'd know that about me. Like mm. I, I'm definitely the person that, 
you know, if, if somebody does need help, they'll be like, Renelle will know. Yeah, I agree yeah. with you. I think uh, based on our conversation earlier, I could yeah. definitely co-sign on that. Thank you. But speaking of like the fact that you're so passionate about the GBV space, like what led you to want to start a career in that space and what particularly do you feel your role, your ca- calling in that space is? Sure. It didn't start out that way. I think I was very fortunate to go to a, I had a really positive schooling experience at an all-girls school, which yeah. I know a lot, a lot of people don't have. Yeah. But for me, it was a really cool space because I grew up in an environment where like the best, the best sports person was a a girl exactly the best academic person was a girl you know and so I was always surrounded by like women and Mm. girl power and like you know girls the positive female friendships and things like that yeah and and when you're in those spaces obviously as you go through them and you get older and older Mm. then you know girls you get boyfriends or girls get teachers hit on girls or Mm. you know and so so and I think it's also something you're always taught to worry about is Mm. you know rape or gender-based violence yeah and it was always like it was always something that like really frustrated me that that was such an inevitable part of growing up yeah and I think when I got to varsity and you know was around and I I don't have brothers I've never grown up around Around males yeah it was such a shock for me that like some of these things Mm. were like new to people yeah but I I, I wasn't going to go into gender-based violence and I I think my my aspirations was to be a a, like a history teacher really (laughs) yeah in my was in my third my second third year yeah I was doing I was doing psychology and then I saw an advert for volunteers for rape crisis yes but it had always like sexual violence has is is personally very very relevant to me and very important to me mm. and then I I was like okay I'll you know I'll see what that's like yeah and then they called me and then I did the training course and it changed my life wow so and what then was, I was the training course on so it was to become a volunteer counselor yes crisis so all of the the councils are volunteers yes and it's an amazing service and it's free and it's you know and it's very intensive training so yeah it's, it's you and you get screened a lot so yeah. You really have to be okay with your own stuff mm. because you you can't bring it to other people. And then there was an opportunity to become staff and I applied and then I realized that this is what I, sure. you know, this is what I want. I want to do this every day. So um, it's kind of like it gravitated towards you more yeah. than you were actively pursuing that yeah. part. Like yeah. I think I almost saw it as like a, it was going to be like my, my volunteering mm. in the back of my life but then now it's become my Your whole life. world yeah. basically <laughs> yeah yeah and talk to me through a few things like people who don't understand what gender-based violence is if you can break it down for me sure. um into simpler terms and where does like intimate partner violence fit into gbv is it all the same thing sure yeah so and i mean i think that's an important question because, mm. uh, and and uh, I do think GBV is such a buzzword right now yeah. as well. Mm. And rightly, I'm glad, you know, love that because yeah. it, it's good that that's becoming so much more of a conversation. Mm. But gender-based violence is sort of your broad, broad category. Mm-hmm. And it's basically different types of forms of violence directed towards people because of their gender and yeah. their gender identity. Yeah. So they're... And they're also particularly vulnerable to victimization because of their gender identity. Mm. So, 
you know, and it's not. And I think people often think it's it's just women, yeah, and girls, but yeah. it's not. It can also be, you know, people who are on the the gender spectrum, mm. but also like children, exactly, bo- like boy children, mm. men who are inappropriately masculine, exactly, in inverted commas. And, you know, and that sort of thing as well. So, but it's this idea of like their gender mm. is the reason for, the primary reason for victimization. Yeah. And intimate partner violence and domestic violence yeah. fall within that as well, often, mm. because you're particularly vulnerable to a certain kind of violence because of your gender identity and your proximity to yeah. another gender identity, which is often masculine. Yeah. You know, hyper masculinity. Yeah. And toxic masculinity, mm. um, but intimate part, domestic violence, and is violence within like a home setting, but not yes. necessarily just a home, like a a family setting mm. as well. So, it so can this be, is with people you actually know. Yes. Yeah, so mm. it it wouldn't necessarily be like you and I. Mm. It would be someone within your family system. Someone, and it could be you know, violence perpetrated against a, like an elder in your family yeah. or a young child in your family or your spouse or your partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and so intimate partner violence can also then be an offshoot of that. But intimate partner violence is, is yeah. between romantic partners. Okay. So that's, um, there's a distinction there as well. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's actually a really good breakdown, which kind of like will lead to the conversation of consent, which, I mean, you mentioned girls' schools, which I also think if I go back, I went to girls' school too. Oh, really? We should start teaching consent in Allo, I think it teaches sex or, or sexual education in the wrong format. But I've often heard people say things like, in South Africa, it's hard to understand if women want sex or not. If somebody says, I'm not in the mood, does that mean they're in the mood later? Or is, yeah. Are they directly saying yes or no? So what is consent? And if I'm in a relationship with someone, do I always have access to sex? Is sex always guaranteed? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> it's a short answer. No, it's yeah. not. No. And, and, and look, I think, and that's, it is relatively new, mm. that idea of consent and the conception that we have of consent as mm-hmm. well. Because, you know, under the apartheid laws, marital rape was legal. So sure. it was definitely this idea of like, if you're in a relationship with somebody that you have that access. Mm. But that's, that's, thank goodness, changed. Yeah. But consent is also not like the yes or no of it all. It's a lot about, yeah. and I really like that definition, but it's like consent is like fries and then yeah. it's freely given, yeah. reversible, um, it's really great because it's a much more positive mm. conception of consent where it's sort of saying that like consent is specific yes. to different different sexual acts, different kinds mm-hmm. of intimacy. But it's also something that's exciting and mm. something you want and is exactly. enthusiastic. Yes. And that's sort of, you know, also very key. Mm. But what I also really like about the way that we're starting to think about consent and, and implementing ideas around consent. Yeah. Is that, you know, it can be withdrawn Mm. at any time. We're starting to think much more seriously about how power dynamics affect sexual relationships and intimate relationships and romantic relationships. So that yeses are not always yeses in the way that Mm. we would understand enthusiasm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think that that's really important as well. So we're starting to see that like, yes, people can consent to things. Mm. But does it take power dynamics into account? And I, I really like that that's where the conversation seems to be. It's a lot like the Me Too movement. Did exactly. And even with Quizzy, because yes. that was the whole conversation of yeah. is wearing something 
implicitly saying that yes, I consent, and yeah. because you know of the relationship between Kwezi and Jacob Zuma, there was obviously that power dynamic. Yeah, yeah. and she also felt that she could not say. No, because, Absolutely. I mean, this was somebody who was elderly and respectable in the family. 100%. Yeah. And I think, like, that that's re- that's a really important facet of the conversation. Mm. Because, I, you know, I've had so many clients who don't meet that definition, where they, mm. they didn't say no. Mm. Um, but that's not the point. Yeah. Because they, they did not want to, and they maybe didn't fight back, but it was definitely a, mm. they were afraid, they were scared of the repercussions, yeah. they were fearful for their lives. Yeah. And like, you know, it's important that we are at a place now where we can acknowledge that that constitutes sexual violence. Exactly. Like, you know, without a shadow of yeah. a doubt. Yeah. yeah. And even when I actually think of it, like often I have um, conversations with my girlfriends who are like on Tinder or just random women. And a lot of them also say there's also this perception in the Tinder bumble culture that if a guy pays on a date, then it's guaranteed sex afterwards without consent. Yeah. And sometimes certain women will feel a guilt and feel like they have to go. Sure. Or if you find yourself going on a date and meeting at the guy's place um, and you don't know how to say no, am I going to be able to walk away from that situation? Yeah. Um, what advice do you have? Like, it's actually a tricky one to mm. say because it's almost like we're putting the pressure on women to kind of find a solution to that when it should be, let's educate men yeah. to do better. Yeah, I mean, and it, it is tricky because mm. you always, and especially I think working with communities and, and especially like the diversity within South Africa and yeah. like in terms of cultural beliefs, religious backgrounds, mm. like, you know, the racial stuff, the economic stuff. Yeah. There's also like, you can't be saying there's a one size fits all model. Mm. Um, and, and we see that a lot where you can't say, you must just say no. Yeah. You know, you must just ignore. If he cat calls you, you must educate him. Yeah, it's no. dangerous mm, to do exactly. that if you're a certain kind of person. Yeah. And like, I think, and again, it's, it's power, you mm. know, and power dynamics and, you know, and I think that, but what I would say in terms of that is to be able to, I think to, to let women and to teach women to be much more proactive and, Mm-hmm. assertive in conversations around sex yes and to sort of like bring it up on the first day yes. and manage expectations i mean like if that's what's going on yeah here, yeah then either you're going to be disappointed or like we're we're on the same page about this because exactly. i think i think that that's important is that women can feel mm. that they can put that out there yeah and then it's up to the other person to make their decisions yeah but instead of them sort of feeling like I'm just going to hope he's a nice guy. Yes. But I hate that as well yeah. because it is also like There's a, a perception. And what is a yeah. nice guy? No, exactly. Mm. Often, often not that nice. Yeah. But also, again, it's, and, and I mean, that's the, the, the frustration about this conversation about gender, but sexual violence especially mm. is like, it's always women who have to adjust their behavior. Exactly. And it sucks, man. Like yeah. it really, and it's it's not always helpful because even if you do manage the best of expectations, exactly, you, you know, it doesn't guarantee that absolutely. nothing's gonna happen. Yeah. And it's so sad. Like we are living in a world where we have to be proactive. Like I'm also like where I'm like, no, men need to take accountability. I'm often switching, and then I'm like, but no, I need to know how to protect myself yeah. in certain situation. I need to inform myself as much as possible. And like I guess an uncomfortable conversation to have that I also realized when I underwent training is like, I don't know. Most women also don't know what do you do if an incident happens and you find yourself in a um, situation where you're, you're basically 
somebody has violated you sexually or in any other manner. And obviously there's like a court system that we have to go and there's evidence and all of that. So like if I've been a victim of a sexual assault, let's say I went on a Tinder date and something happens, what's the first thing that I need to do? Sure. So, and I I, I do love being asked this question Mm. because there's an amazing model in South Africa that a lot of people don't know about. I wouldn't have known about it if I didn't work in a sector. Yeah. But we have something in South Africa called Tutuzela Care Centers. Yes. And they are basically one-stop sexual assault, sexual violence, Mm gender-based violence Mm -hmm. units. Mm Mm-hmm within certain public hospitals within the country. Yeah. And it's a great service in theory and Mm -hmm. often in implementation as well, but Mm -hmm. in theory because it's it's like you start there and Mm -hmm. then whatever resources need to be mobilized can be mobilized. So if a social worker needs to be, if it's a child and Mm -hmm. a social worker needs to be called, they'll call the social worker. Yeah. If you want to open a case with, uh, the police, then uh, the inspecting officer will be called yeah. to come take your statement. But it's also where people will have access then to the medical side of things, like mm. health checkups and stuff like that. And the morning after pull, if, it, um, if that's necessary, and your post-exposure prophylaxis for yes. HIV prevention. Yeah. But it's also the forensic level where they will do the the rape kit. Yes. You know, and and then also which I you know I'm I'm biased towards, but. Crucially, there's also a counselor there. Mm. And so they're able to contain you and talk you through the process and, yeah. you know, sort of make that space much more sensitized. Yeah. And I think a lot of people think you have to go to SAPS and, like, stand in the line. And Which can also have its own problems. No, it's horrible. SAPS is not always equipped. No, and, yeah. and, and the people that within the police that manage sexual violence mm. are something, we call them the FCS unit. It's the Family Violence, Child Protection and Sexual Offences Unit. Yes. And they are, in theory, specialized to deal specifically with those kinds of crimes. So they're also sensitized and they're Mm. trained and they know the Sexual Offenses Act and the Child Protection Act and all of those things. Yeah. So it's not your average guy at the charge office Mm. who is also signing, you know, certifying your documents. That's the one who's supposed to be taking your statement because that statement is so important. Exactly. So... I think a lot of people don't realize that. And I think a lot of people don't report mm. because they think they have to go to SAPS and they don't trust exactly. SAPS. So I think if more people knew about the TCC, mo- so the Tutuzela Care Center, we call the TCC, TCC yeah. model, um, I think people would be a little bit less mm. hesitant. And also that there's no, we say, prescription on sexual offenses, on rape in South Africa. Yeah. So you can report 40 years later. Yeah. And the TCC is great there because, you know, mm. you can have forensic evidence done and still decide, I'm not going to report right now. Yeah. And um, they'll still keep that evidence. And they will keep that evidence. Mm. I don't, I, I'm not 100% sure how long they keep mm. it for, but they do keep it for quite a while. Yeah. But it's, it's so that is your, your first thing is to try and get to the TCC as soon as possible. Mm. And not necessarily to report because you don't have to report to have access to that service. Yeah. But to get that medical assistance is yeah. like so crucial. Yeah. Because the a lot of that medication has like a forty eight hour mm. or seventy two hour window. Yeah. So you've got to get that as quickly as possible. The Tutuzela care centers are all over the country, right? Yeah. In each and every province. Yeah. And how, like, if I needed to call one, is there a hotline? Sure. How um, does it work? Yeah, so they're not at every public hospital. Yeah. They, and the unfortunate thing mm-hmm. is that they are very concentrated in urban areas, which yeah. is often the case. Mm-hmm. But but they are accessible 
I know Rape Crisis recently did a uh, like a a map of all the TCCs in each different province and their contact numbers. Yes. But so what I would do is is look for that Tutuzela Care Center, yeah. Gauteng, Mpumalanga, yes. Western Cape, and go from there, mm. and then it should come up. Mm-hmm. But also to see because they're housed within specific hospitals. So in like the Western Cape. There's one in Colbrema Hospital, there's one yes. in Victoria Hospital, yes. and there's one in Haderfeld. Yes, yes. And Kailicha District Hospital as well. Yeah. So what I would do, mm-hmm. what I used to do when I was when I was still working at Rape Crisis is you can call the hospital directly and yes. ask to be put through to the to just electricity. So that you don't have to go through the admin stuff in yeah. the hospital. Yeah. 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 Because a lot of people will walk into trauma, mm. for example, and then wait and then be yeah. made to wait. And, yeah. And it's it's a very specialized service. Mm. But they also are now starting to see domestic violence cases as well. So it's not just sure. sexual violence. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. Okay. So we'll definitely put up like notes on T C C so that people know where to go. The other part that I want to kind of ask, in what ways do you think as South Africans or as family members, as friends of GBV survivors, how are we failing them or how are we failing to show up for them? Mm. So many ways. Yeah. <laughs> I think, I mean, one of the most crucial ones is to not be survivor led, right? Mm. And I think, and I, you know, I see that a lot in counseling where, we and I think we all want to fix and we all want to make it better and we yeah. don't have control and we want yeah. control so we we start mobilizing and mm. we start we need to report we need to do this yeah. we need to do that and and we don't just listen yeah. and sit with the person's emotions yes and and listen to what they think mm. the best way forward is or what they're feeling mm-hmm. that they have capacity for yeah and sure that's such an important point because at the end of the day the survivor knows best yeah. better than they know the full situation 100%. they know when they're at the highest risk yeah. so you coming in objectively yeah. is not always necessarily the right answer no and i mean exactly and and especially you know considering that there's there's also this victim offender mm. dynamic in south africa and mm-hmm. i think in a lot of contexts where a lot of survivors know their perpetrator. Mm. And it's much more complicated than like getting the man who dragged you into a bush to yeah. go to prison forever. Exactly. It's way more complicated than that. And I think, you know, and you see it a lot with like partners or best friends mm. or, or parents mm. where they, they're like, we have to report and we have to, you know, yeah. we have to go through the court process. And that's not every survivor's journey. Mm. And I think to respect that is very important mm. because it's also important not to infantilize rape survivors and treat them like yeah. they're now incapacitated exactly. and destroyed. and Because then not... you're taking the control away Absolutely. again, which is like another trauma from... Absolutely. Yeah. But it's hard. And mm. I mean, that's why I... You know, I sometimes used to say like counseling is feels sometimes like a bit of a gimmick. Sure. Uh, or like a cheap trick just because like all I do is like really just listen mm. and sit with those really uncomfortable, horrible emotions. Sure. And like, you know, when you put it that way, it doesn't sound very difficult, but it's hard, yeah. you know, yeah. like, and I think it's so rare how many people get a platform like that and mm. get access to a platform like that where someone's just going to sit with you in yeah. that. They're not going to tell you what to do, how yeah. to do, when to do, but just listen. Absolutely. Mm. So, so I think, I think that's a big way we're failing survivors. But also I think, to ha- to let the sort of stereotypes and myths win, yeah, we still do that as well. Yeah, and victim blame. Yes, um, and you know, and even and it's and I think it's it's so ingrained mm. in us as a society. I mean, even the way 
you know, media articles are structured. Exactly. And it's very, you know, it's always focused on the woman as if she's actually the perpetrator yeah. of her own violence. And there's some kind of behavior that mm. she did or they did to yeah. to sort of warrant this. Yeah. Um, and I think there's also this in South Africa, this thing of like, well, South Africa is a dangerous place. That's so, the thing. It doesn't make it acceptable. You know, what did you think was going to yeah. happen? And I think like we, we don't check that enough at the door. Yeah. And and like I think it's it's okay to have those feelings because I think a lot of that is 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 quite intuitive mm. now. But to just be very aware of that and like work on that, yeah. especially because what I, what I think as well that happens a lot is that I almost want to say I guarantee that everybody knows a, a sexual violence survivor. Yeah, you just don't know. You know one exactly. Um, and a lot of the time when you talk, when we have these conversations, you're communicating to that person mm. whether or not you're safe to talk to. Yeah, yeah. And I think to, to sort of go in assuming that you've got to be sensitive to, mm. to people in general. Yeah. And and be aware of what, the, you know, what the possible trigger points there might be. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think we don't have enough of those conversations mm. because there is still this perception of sexual violence as like a, you know, a thing that happens in, like, isolated context. And it's not. It's, it's happening right here. It's happening yeah. right now in our spaces. Yeah. Mm. And, you know, the perpetrators are not scary, black, strange men. Like, yeah. they're private school swimmers. Exactly. Like, you know, they Some are... Some of them are teachers. teachers. They're in our trusted yeah. spaces, yeah. communities. Yeah. And mm. I think I think to, to sort of to sort of be aware of those dynamics is very, very important. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when you speak about like trigger sensitivity and all of that, like we live in a like an era where everyone's putting everything out on social media. How do you, if you want to speak out about an incident, how do you do that in a way that is like trigger sensitive or like you give people trigger warnings before you're yeah. about to communicate something that might possibly trigger someone? Yeah. And that's such a great question because I think it's, we have to walk that balance between like not not avoiding the conversation because we don't upset people, mm. but also like letting survivors feel that they can go and not be reminded that they're a rape survivor constantly, which I think the media is sometimes can sometimes do. Yeah. But I think, I mean, what to try and be as trauma informed as possible is mm. always the go to and to, and to seek consent, right? Like, yes, I mean, it's, it's something I do in my personal life and I, I, you know, I get, my mom looks at me funny sometimes where I'm like, can I give you a hug or yes. can I like I always yes. hug. and it's it's a little bit like you know because we weren't taught that it's like yeah. you kiss auntie so and so exactly because but, that's what you do so like rather ask permission mm. right it's not and it's it, and it's actually it's it's quite the more we do that the more we normalize but I think to also yeah to be able to like give people as much information so that they can decide what to engage mm. with. So content notes, trigger warnings. So to say to somebody like this is the this is gonna come up. Yeah. And not to sort of surprise people mm. about it. Which I think also we need to create spaces because now men don't feel comfortable enough to be like yeah. there's a space that exists for me to also yeah. be because of the narrative around it, and again, I guess, I think in South Africa, within our context, majority is women. So there's also like an emasculating sort of feel to men coming up to the forefront to be like, but I'm also a survivor. Sure. Yeah. yeah. No, and I think especially, um, you know, the prevalence amongst boys mm. is, and and we also have a huge problem in South Africa, and it's also a conversation I don't think people are ready to have around incest. Yes. That's a huge problem, mm. and especially against young boys. Yeah. And I think, you know, 
child on child sexual violence is yeah. also a big thing and that happens in those contexts as well. Yeah. But also, you know, within the LGBTIAQ plus community and especially like grinder culture. Mm. Very, oh gosh, very grinder toxic. toxic. Yeah. <laughs> very, very toxic. And and uh, that thing about like Tinder, like mm. you know, it's kind of an expectation exactly. that you're on grinder. Um but then also I think, you know, with female perpetrators or mm. women perpetrators mm-hmm there's a tendency not to take that very seriously because, yeah. you know, how does that work? Exactly. You know? and people get very caught up in the logistics of that. Yeah. But it does happen. Yeah. Where there's people, I think violence will happen. And I think to just to be sensitive to that as well. And it needs to be a conversation yeah. in all spaces, I think. Absolutely. And if I could ask you, how do I show up to a survivor with no judgment. So if, for instance, if a little boy or a man or somebody who's not typically or who I would not typically think fits the survivor model comes to me and tells me that this is the situation, how do I not come up with judgment and be like, oh, but are you sure? How do you show up with no judgment? It's tricky. And and I I don't, you know, I think counselors, we can sometimes pretend we're so good at that. But, it's you know, judgments are also just the ways that people organize the world so it's not it's it's not it's not inherently negative yeah but i think it's to be very conscious mm. of your trigger points and yeah. like the things that you're going to now start making assumptions around mm-hmm. that's really important as well and i think yeah what does tend to happen a lot with survivors is judgments around if it's within like a romantic relationship mm. or if the perpetrator is popular or a nice guy yeah. or all of those good things or they're like a leader in the community or well respected pastors mm. yep religious leaders and but i think the the, the easiest way for me mm. Is there's this wonderful concept in psychology called unconditional positive regard. Okay. Which is basically, very basically, like you just you you believe what your client gives you mm-hmm. in a like you 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 give them the benefit of the doubt, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really like that concept because that's what you do. Yeah. And you go in sort of even when things are like, oh that oh, I wonder how that like yeah. you sort of are like going to give them going to trust that they're telling me the truth mm. and the way i like to explain it as well is like it's because you're you're not a judge exactly. or magistrate or a lawyer mm-hmm. or the police or anybody yeah so it isn't really your job to assess whether or not the person is telling the truth yeah and that will come mm. if it needs to mm. because there's also this this new you know incel thing and this 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 like moral panic within yes. these really toxic masculine spaces about yeah. women reporting rape falsely. Yes, That's yes. Like and that gets thing. amplified oh, all the time. And yeah. I mean, the, the oh. last, the, the, the stat that I know, mm-hmm. but I think it's quite outdated. I think it's from 2012 and I think the number's even lower now, is that there's an 8.6% conviction rate for rape in South Africa. My gosh, that is scary. So from the cases reported yeah. to the conviction stage so there's a lot of drop off yes. throughout 8.6% get a conviction right? my word so if you've been falsely accused yeah a lot has to happen before you can get before convicted before you're going to post more yeah. you know what I mean like yeah. it's, it's and I'm not saying it doesn't happen I'm sure it, it does mm-hmm. but like that's not really where the moral panic should exactly. be exactly and what um, women wants to put themselves through that level of scrutiny absolutely to, yeah no and, and I think I think yeah, and the burden of proof in, in sexual offences cases mm. is incredibly high. Mm. So it's not an easy thing to get convicted yeah. of, right? It's not like the judge takes one look at yeah. you and it's like, 
you look like, you know, that's how that works. Yeah. Not at all. It's much more complicated than that. So I think mm-hmm. that to to sort of go in knowing yeah. that there's a there's a very low chance that this person is lying. Mm-hmm. And I think to just check yourself on that as well. Yeah. But also, like I said, to, to trust that that person is confiding or disclosing yeah. in you for a reason. Yeah. And that, you know, you need to meet them there mm-hmm. and... And you need to watch yourself then, and just be just be very reflective. I think exactly. Yeah, yeah. When you say that, like even with me, I think through time I've had to relearn and unlearn, and then you realize, okay, this is not how I should have showed up. And your immediate, sure. like for me as somebody who likes problem solving, my immediate oh, yeah. go to is like, how can we solve this? So, so then I learned how that takes control yeah. away from somebody who's a GBV survivor yeah. because already in there in their context they don't feel like they have control so now to have somebody else tell them so I think your point around like you need to actually remove yourself from the situation and open the space and you need to just be open to listening without bringing yourself into the conversation it's not not about you in that moment and trust that like what what I like to remind myself, and it's hard because I'm I'm, a, I'm such a fixer. Like yeah. If if you tell me, oh, you're not feeling well. Yeah. I've already got five different <laughs> solutions for you that you don't need. <laughs> but how I like to think about it is like you know, I've been through a lot in yeah. my life, mm. and it wasn't nice, mm. and it's hard. But I'm I was okay in the end, and yeah. I did get through. Yeah. And like, you know, people other people will also get through, exactly. and they will also. Um, you know they they're also capable mm. like you're capable. So mm. don't take that away from them and mm. think and don't take that autonomy and that agency away exactly. by thinking that you're the capable exactly. person in the room. Yeah. And my partner actually really helped with one case that was really difficult for me, mm. where they said that like just think of that survivor mm-hmm. on their good day, mm. like on a, when they're laughing, and keep that in mind because yes. because when people come to you. You're seeing the worst, right? Yes. And, and it's hard to then yeah. imagine that there's ever a good day. Yeah. But there are. So I think to sure. do that with the people in your life as well mm. and remember that like just like you're capable, exactly. they're also capable. Exactly. And they're the expert in their own life. Yeah. And that's really, really important, I think, to keep in mind. Mm. And when you speak about they're the expert in their own life, like our immediate um, gut instant is to say if somebody comes to me and they're GBV survivor I've got to make sure they leave and the goal is to get them to leave and if they don't like many people like communities friends will say well I'm not going to talk to you until you leave that person or how many times did I tell you not to go back yeah and how why is that problematic it's not helpful Mm -hmm. because that's what abusers thrive on is isolation Mm -hmm. and the more that the support network and that's one of the first things you do as well with with survivors is you try to mobilize their support network as much as possible so like the more isolated the person becomes Mm. the more they're going to stay with an abusive partner so Mm. it actually has the opposite effect a lot of the time because they've got nobody to turn to yeah and Except for this person who on some days is great yeah. and is always sorry mm. and, you know, will never do it again. Yeah. And then you as the friends and the family become villainized a little bit because you're mm. now punishing them yeah. for something that they're actually not doing. Yeah. And I think I think it's it's problematic to, to think that we can, you know, uh, yeah, that we can force somebody to make a decision like that because it is yeah. so much more complicated. Yeah. Like, especially in... 
with intimate partner violence and domestic mm-hmm. violence because there's a lot of socioeconomic stuff tied up exactly. in that, cultural stuff tied yeah. up in that. And you can't you can't now come in and say, mm-hmm. well, well, because are you, how are you going to problem solve around like that person's circumstances? Exactly. Right? Because what if the abuser is the primary breadwinner in the exactly. family? Exactly. What if they are the they live in the same house? Yeah. And now the protection order you want to be served. Yeah. Where where are people going? Exactly. You know, are, are they coming to your house? And exactly. I think people are very quick to sort of punish survive I mean if anything rather don't talk to the abuser yeah, <laughs> like yeah. punish them exactly but I think to to sort of like and it's hard it re- and I'm not you know not to say like oh no just do this yeah but I think the important thing to do is to also have this uh, help the survivor know mm. that like when you're ready yeah. I'm here yes. and we can we can manage it yes. do you know what I mean like yeah. that's the most powerful thing you can do I think yeah. it's like I'm really unhappy with the situation. There's nothing yes. wrong with saying like I hate this for, yes. like, for you. Yes. But I think to to not isolate them mm-hmm. and also to not punish them. Exactly. For something that's way more complicated. Than- yeah, it's not just a binary like no. leave or stay kind of answer. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um so I think I think yeah, it's very important to sort of be like when you are ready, yeah, we will we'll go from there and I'm here for that. Exactly. Um and I, and it's hard. Yeah. But it's I think it's it's way more helpful. And I think even like you've mentioned dynamics, it's more tricky like if you've got children in the mix 100%. because now it's not just it's like where will my children go? Yeah. And if like a social worker gets involved, my kids will get taken exactly. away, which then creates the system where it's like now nah, I must actually stay yeah. for the survival of my kids. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I mean I, I think that's such an important point because the other thing that I've learned with with working with survivors mm. Is perpetrators are people, yeah, right, and people are complicated, yeah. And I think we want to be like there are villains all the time, yeah. And you know, as much as that is true, yeah, there also can be really great dads, exactly. or really wonderful pastors, exactly. or really helpful teachers, exactly. But they're just really bad partners, mm. or they don't know how to manage anger, yeah. So like for us to sort of assume that we can put that person in that little box, yeah. Is not helpful because the, mm. the 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 survivor or the partner is not experiencing them that way all the time. Exactly. Right? So I think to also be sensitive to like yeah. the complexities of the situation. Hundred percent. I remember we were having a debate like, can you still be in love with your perpetrator? Hundred percent. And that can happen. And again, it's yeah. because you go through waves. Like somebody who's been your lover the whole time. In fact, I think I remember having this debate and saying like. I think what society does is like once you find a partner, it's like you stop engaging with your bigger circle. So your mm. partner becomes the focal point of your life. Yeah. And now when situations happen, you feel like this is the only person who knows and understands me. Because when last did I meet, I don't know, my best friend, maybe we only yeah. see each other like once every six months. There we go. And then it's too complex of a situation to now go back and try and figure out what's going on in yeah. my networks. 100%. Mm. And I mean, I think the other thing is that you know, GBV survivors are also people, which makes them complicated. They're yeah. not angelic victims. Yeah, and I think the perfect gender-based no, violent survivor. It's, it's one of the most damaging stereotypes because mm. it says that some people deserve violence and other people don't because, so like, of who they, you know, who they are. Yeah, and nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. And I think the other thing is with a with a, a partner like that is they often there's often that component of like I know you better than anybody. Yeah. 
and you're not you're not the nice person everybody thinks you are. Exactly. And people, you know, survivors internalize that, and mm. then now I've got to explain to my friend, and I don't mm. want you to think badly of him, and yeah. it's complicated. So I think I think to be accessible mm. and to be, you know, I, the 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 sort of way I like to say it. So, you know, the concept of like the Karen or the Karen. Yes. It's yes. like to be the Karen in a survivor's life. Yeah. So like that's really helpful to have somebody who, if the survivor's like, oh, you know, the police haven't followed up with me. Yes. Then you'll be like, you I'll, call. Exactly. I'll call. Mm. Or if you're, they'll be like, you know, I just don't know what to be, do. And it'll be like, well, let me, let me look into it. You know, yeah. so to be able to like, to be a bit of like the the irritating one yeah. externally yeah. can be really helpful for a survivor so that they can fo- focus on the re- their recovery. Yes, yes. Um, and I think that, that that's a way you can be helpful is to harass the police. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, or, or, you know, or do yeah. those things or like be able to mediate between family who don't understand what's going yes, on now. Yes, yes. Um, or, you know, say to friends and be like, you know, she's she's going through something mm-hmm. right now and she doesn't want to talk about it. So mm-hmm. if we could just be, send her a nice message or something, you know, like have exactly. that. Like you, the filter, basically. Yeah, have yeah. that approach as opposed to like, mm-hmm. let's go to war, which I think is the impulse. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. But it's not it's not helpful. Not always helpful. Yeah. And because you've dealt with a lot of survivors, what advice do you have? Like if somebody is a survivor and they're grappling with the, okay, now they have left, but it's building the confidence in the self. Because a lot of survivors go through the journey and they realize like after the incident or through the process of becoming a new person and they're like trying to identify who they are. And building, rebuilding that confidence again. Yeah, it's hard. It's yeah. really hard, especially when it's within, um, you know, when it's someone you know, because mm. I think a lot of your self-worth gets tied up into that. But I think the important thing is to to be, I mean, I always will advocate for counseling, but I think if that's not for you, mm. to find the, the thing for you that is like that, that can help you build yourself up and to see yourself as, and and I'm hesitant to say like see yourself as a survivor. Yeah, because not everyone wants to embrace. Yeah, and you're also the victim of a crime, mm. right? And like that's like it's that's important. Yeah, that, that identity is important because yeah. you have access to justice. You exactly. deserve justice as a victim of a crime. Yeah, but I think what what is always helpful is to sort of celebrate the wins, the mm. little wins with yourself, mm-hmm. but also to you know know that post traumatic growth is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And recovery is possible because mm. I think there's also this really toxic narrative around if you've been raped, yeah, your life is over now. Yeah. You'll never be the same again. You're broken. You're traumatized forever. Uh. You're never like if you if you hear the word rape, you're gonna fall yeah. apart. And like, it's also really, really, really toxic mm. because it it sort of cinches people down to this like one identifying mm. characteristic, and it's a weak one, right? Yeah. It's saying like you're now weak because of this thing, exactly. forever. Mm. So I think to also sort of say to people like you can, it it's complicated. Like yeah. you can you can have good days, exactly. You can you know, I did have I had one survivor, yeah, who you know she said in, in counseling and she was making a joke. She was like. Because when you go to the TCC, you yes. often get a comfort pack. Yes. With like some items in it because you have to, you know, give your clothing in for evidence and yes. you aren't supposed to shower and whatever. Yeah. And then she said, she was like, I didn't realize if you get raped, you get a prize. <laughs> so and I was like, uh, that's like, and my face, was, I didn't know like how to, but, how but to I, deal with that. But, but I, I love that moment yeah. because it was, it happens a lot more than you think because mm. it's, it's people, right? Exactly. And like, 
you manage it how you you can. Like, exactly. You know, sometimes you have a dark sense of humor about exactly. it. Exactly. And so to, to to tell survivors that there's no right way to recover. Yeah. That you you need to find the thing for you, mm. and and go from there. Yeah. I do think counseling is helpful, even if it's to talk about how it's affected you and not mm-hmm. what happened. Because mm-hmm. that's a rule is that in, in counseling is like yeah. you never ask what happened. Yes. What yes. are the what are the details? Yeah. Because that's actually not the main focus of counseling. Counseling yeah. is a lot about how has it affected you? Mm-hmm. How has it impacted you? It's like talking about the actual event, you relive the trauma again and by the time you've gotten there, depending on like the reporting process, you've spoken to somebody when you went to the police station or mm-hmm. if you went to your T- TCC's sent and so like to relive that story yeah. over and over yeah. and over again yeah and yeah it, and it's it, it and some survivors are so over it as mm. well by the time they get to you at counseling they're like yeah. okay like and it's almost like they become desensitized sure. to the story sometimes yeah but also other times it can be really traumatizing to talk yeah. about what happened mm. and that's not really the focus of counseling exactly. it's a lot about how it's affected you and yeah. how are you managing and how are you coping and mm. It's not about like the the gory details exactly. always. Yeah. yeah. And you do group counseling as well. So like uh, if, if there's family members or the supporting, yeah. So rape crisis doesn't necessarily facilitate that. Mm. But there are some really amazing organizations that do so. FAMSA is one of them. Yes. Um, and they do family counseling and mm. they do look at like trauma and things like that, and family dynamics. Yeah. And there are there are situations like that where you need to mediate with the family a little bit, especially around adolescent survivors, yes. because parents can also be really yeah tricky. Mm-hmm. So to be able to sort of have a conversation with them about how they might not be being very helpful, exactly, um, which is difficult. Yeah, um, but it is important to get the support system on board. Yeah, and to try and say to them like, you can have your breakdown. Mm. In that room. Exactly. You know? But don't expect your child to now yeah. have to... Yeah, but you, like, the- you can have that space, but it's just important that like you really try to remember that it's about them and mm. it's about their journey. Mm. That is so important. And you've now left Rape Crisis and you joined Kwanele. Can you tell us what, what how's Kwanele revolutionizing the GBV space using tech? Sure. So, yeah, so I... And look, I, look, I think I always volunteer at Rape Crisis because yeah. it's... It's it's definitely an amazing organization, and I you know the work that they do is incredible. Yes, and I I do love the counseling side, but Cornele, it's in a similar field because mm. of the the GBV, but it's it's mm-hmm. much broader. It's not just sexual violence; it's yeah. also gender based violence yes. more broadly and femicide, and working with survivors there. Yeah, but specifically in accessing justice. Sure. So and making the criminal justice system a bit more accessible through. Yeah. The use of tech. Yes. So how Cornele sort of, the main sort of feature of it was this app mm. that they they developed. And it's a data-free app and it's a free app. That's and amazing. it's basically like a panic button Yes. App. And there are quite a lot of those, but they're, you know, you have to pay for them. Yeah. Usually. And Cornele sort of found a way to do that for free. Mm. And you activate the panic button and then either steps or armed response are dispatched. Yes. Um, but it also like does an audiovisual recording yes which is great because if you're in a situation you can get and that that footage is time stamped so it can that's be that's admiss- court yes. in, in, so yes. it's admissible in court and it's also secured in a vault so there's yeah. there's all sorts of they've really like tried to make it so mm. that it is a way to collect evidence as well as get 
access to help. That's amazing. And then they also refer to organizations to provide direct services as well. Yeah, so, which is quite helpful because I think the whole system is very overwhelming for yeah. like a person who's not in the legal space or who doesn't understand the criminal justice system. Yeah. So to make it more accessible, because there's obviously also like language barriers, there's yeah. educational barriers to that accessing that help. Yeah, absolutely. And I, so, so that's the 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 latest project that Cornelia is looking at now is. Mm-hmm. It's it's really exciting. Yeah, it's it's building a chatbot essentially using generative AI, artificial intelligence. Yes, and we're building a bot. We're calling it ChatGBV instead of ChatGPT. Amazing, uh, which I thought was very catchy <laughs> because it's. But what it's going to do is it's and what we're building right now is that it's going to help people mm. get information around reporting rape and getting a protection order. Amazing, but because generative AI mm-hmm. in the in the broader sense yes uh, a lot of the data that it is trained to scrape yes is you know built for affluent white people yeah in America or wherever yeah it's not always very accessible mm. within the South African context mm-hmm. it doesn't have the language it doesn't have the cultural sensitivities yes. and nuances so what Cornell is doing is going into key communities and co-creating yeah. the language model mm. and going to train the bot That's to be a- able to provide that information yeah. based on certain questions, based on the questions that the person asks. So in a yeah. language that is intended for the... So it's going to speak in a language yeah. intended for the... In, in the same language for the people it's intended to serve, which yes, is really that's cool. that's amazing. Because then you personalize the experience and it's yeah. relatable to everyone, like across races, across different languages. Yeah. And then you get to, what do you call it, um, bridge those cultural differences in the way we express certain yeah. things. Yeah. And understanding as well, I think, mm. that there's not a there's not a right way to do you know there's not like a, a perfect way to deal with it. Like, yeah. it, like the, there is space for the for you know, cultural nuance mm. in dealing with gender-based violence. Mm-hmm. But I think what is also really exciting is like putting it in African languages yeah. and, and in vernacular and in yeah. language and legal language that then becomes easier to understand. Exactly. And also doesn't sort of, you know, like, uh, uh, and I think especially in feminist spaces, mm. as powerful as they can be, there's a lot of like, you know, around sexual violence, around virginity. Yes. And it's like, your virginity is a construct. Like, yeah. you mustn't be sucking up on that. Yeah. Like, for a lot of people, that's very, very important. Yeah. So for the app to then, or the, the bot to say, like, don't, you know, d- yeah. let me tell you about virginity. Yeah. <laughs> it's not helpful. Exactly. So that's also what it's it's starting mm. to do. And and we're also trying to work um, closely with sex workers. Yeah. They have a very particular yeah. kind of experience yeah. with the police and accessing yeah. justice as well. And it's, it's a weird, I think it can be a weird concept for people. Mm. It's like, why would I want to talk to a, a robot or a bot yeah. when I, you know, like, I'd, like that's strange. Yeah. But what I learned through, you know, being in the sector for a while is a lot of people start with Google now. Yes, because that's where you go. You yeah. instinctively, like, let me just Google it. Or a WhatsApp line mm. because they don't want to tell a person. Exactly. Because it is complicated and they don't exactly. want to be judged. They don't want to be forced to report. Exactly. They don't know if it if it counts. They don't, like, there's 
it's almost like they, they want to gather the, some intel first. Mm. And then make then, the next step. Yeah, yeah, but then when you go to Google, it's not always regionally relevant. Exactly, it, especially when it comes to like interdicts or like absolutely. You, it, you could be having the wrong papers for yeah. the wrong court. 100%. Mm. So that's what, what's quite cool about this is that it's, it's, it's trying to almost be like a first point of call mm. in accessing that information. And at any point, the person can opt to speak to a, a real human. Yeah. But we are the, the bot that we're creating it. And it, and I think it's really important as well because AI is already being used exactly. for so much terrible stuff. Yeah. So I think to be able to bring this side of the conversation mm. in is really, really important. And I think it's nice because it centralizes the information. So like mm. people now have like a point of call where they know like I need resources, I'm unclear about this. And you know it's not a space where you ask a question because you're talking to a bot that there's yeah. judgment or there's anything. You just get the yeah. information that you need. Yeah. But yeah. It, I mean it, it's 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 it's, and it sounds weird to say it's great yeah. fun to create because it is quite morbid. But, yeah. you know, I do think in this sector you have to have a bit of gallows humor because yeah. you, you'll burn out very quickly <laughs> if you don't. But, like, yeah. you know, we had a, a staff meeting the other day where we were discussing, like, the persona of the bot. Yes. And, like, what, what, how should this bot, mm. like, what should they be? You know, mm. like, what kind of a – are they a person? Yeah. Are they a robot? Yeah. Are they a woman or a man? Are they gender neutral? So sure. we had, a, like, a that back is- and forth about, like, <laughs> Is the bot gender yeah. neutral? Like, yeah. you know, and like discussing like, you know, who who would you want to approach? Like who, mm. you know, and we, and a lot of the the work we're doing, we're also surveying that and seeing like, yeah. you know, what, what who would you want to talk to yeah. if you are going to speak to the bot and how, and also to teach the bot then to respond in that persona. Exactly. And it's really exciting to be able to use technology in that way, yeah. I think for this kind of thing. Yeah. Because it is, you know, a lot of this is going in that direction. Yeah. And that's really it's important that we're we're in front of that Absolutely. and that we're using it for a better cause. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So Ronell, it's our tradition on the podcast that when the guest is about to leave, that they leave like good parting words or advice for a community who are currently navigating the twenties. So do you have any advice that you could share with our community? I think what I wish someone had told me when I was started in this in my 20s was that it's not that serious <laughs> in the sense that like it is now is the time to to learn about yourself and learn what you're interested in and learn what you want to do and who you are and all of those things and like the more mistakes you do make there it it helps because you sort of you learn that that's not the path for you so I think I think to sort of take that pressure off of yourself a little bit and realize like this is the time like I think that the, the cool thing about like the product at the end of your 20s is not like you become a CA or a lawyer or a you know married person or with a you know a child on the way or the perfect thing like the product at the end is, is a, a, a more nuanced you and a more understood you mm-hmm. so like whatever process that is that's what that's what you should you should look for so so to not be so and I think to not be so hung up on the timelines because Especially with social media, I think we have so much there's so much pressure to be doing things at a certain pace, and it's not real, right? Like it's different for everybody. So I think to, to just be to, to take take your twenties as an experimental phase, <laughs> I think you know, and 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 then it can be quite fun, and it, I think it takes a lot of the the pressure off as well. For survivors, for rapes, or GBV survivors in their twenties, I think. To also know that this is not a defining 
thing for you. This is not the rest of your life. This is not, your life is not over now. I think that's really important because a lot of survivors are within this age group. And so I think to also know that like it gets better, you're not always going to feel this way. And that's it for our seventh episode. Thank you for being a part of this growing community. And if this conversation has touched you or helped you in any way, consider sharing it with a friend, colleague, or even a family member. Remember, you can also support the show by subscribing to the podcast and giving us a rating on your podcast platform or on our YouTube channel. If you're looking for a place to debrief about episode 7 with Ronal, follow our social media pages, Navigating the 20s, on LinkedIn, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook. Remember that the next LinkedIn and Substack newsletter will be out today, which is the 22nd of November. This has been Navigating the 20s. We will be back with more in two weeks' time on the 6th of December. (laughs) 